0: Hello, everyone. I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with B.A. Shapiro, the author of The Art Forger, a novel that blends past and present around the 1990 art theft at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Claire Roth, her heroine, is waiting for an eagerly anticipated visitor. I step back and scrutinize the paintings. There are 11, although I have hundreds, maybe thousands. My plan is to show him only pieces from my window series or not. I pull myself from my pocket, check the time. I can still change my mind. I remove Tower, a highly realistic painting of reflections off the glass Hancock building, and replace it with Sidewalk, an abstraction of Commonwealth Avenue through a parlor-level bay window. Then I switch them back. I've been working on the window series for over two years, rummaging around the city with my sketchbook and Nikon. Church windows, reflective windows, Boston's ubiquitous bays. Large, small, old, broken, wood and metal framed. Windows from the outside in and the inside out. I especially like windows on late winter afternoons before anyone inside notices the darkening sky and snaps the blinds shut. I hang sidewalk next to tower. Now there are a dozen, a nice round number. But is it right? Too many, and he'll be overwhelmed. Too few, and he'll miss my breath, both in content and style. It's so difficult to choose, one of the many reasons studio visits make me so nervous. I see that the Art Forge is on the New York Times trade paperback bestseller list, so congratulations, Barbara. Thank you. Yeah, it's going to be even higher next week. Is it? Oh. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. 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 I'll, I'll be to watching for it. 13 next week.
0: Really? That's really yeah. very impressive.
1: Yeah, it's pretty exciting.
0: <laughs> so let's start about, uh, by telling a little bit about your background. Uh, where did you grow up and what led you to become a writer? Um, I grew
1: up in West Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, from the time I was a little girl, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a novelist. Uh, I consume novels. And the day that I sat down, this is kind of politically incorrect, but the day I sat down and read Gone with the Wind, and I must have been 10, 12 years old and didn't really get the political incorrectness of it, and turned around and started back on page one and finished. I said to my mother, this is what I want to be when I grow up. I want to write stories like this. And she was very encouraging, but along the way I figured out that I couldn't make a living writing novels, which does turn out to be the truth, and I became a sociologist. So I have 3 degrees in sociology, but that didn't turn out to be a very good way to make a living either. So after I had a number of very big jobs, I had two kids and decided I didn't want to be superwoman anymore. And I but when I quit my job, I didn't quite know what to do with myself and I was whining to my mother, uh, if I'm not superwoman, I don't know who I am and she said to me if you have one year to live what would you want to do? And I said write a novel and spend time with my children and she said go for it. So that's how I started writing.
0: And did you take courses or did you read about writing or did you just get in and write? I just went in and wrote why
1: or how and I had the you know the hubris to do such a thing I don't know but I I also I tell my students I teach writing that one of the things that you need to write fiction is to love fiction and to have read thousands and thousands of novels which give you this kind of innate muscle memory about how to write. So I think that started it. And I wrote my first novel, which was very flawed and didn't get published, as most first novels didn't. Then I started taking classes on story structure and workshops. And that was when I started working with the writers group. And the first novel that came out of that group did get published.
0: Yeah, I have a writer's group too. I find it absolutely invaluable.
1: I don't know how people write without them, but I have many writing buddies who don't. Uh, I I just find that I get to, you know when you're when you're writing it, you're like an inch away from it, and it's very hard you know to see that forest that way. And having other people read it and then say to you, "Oh, I really you know I, I can't stand that guy in that scene," and you're like wait, he's supposed to be a good guy. And then they say, well, but you had him say this one thing and that made me not like him. And, you know, you don't realize that about your own writing. And I, I think the feedback is, you know, a total necessary thing for me.
0: Yeah, I think so too. And and it's also very hard to figure out what other people need to know. You know, it's, I, like, I, it's for me, I can see it so clearly in my head And that it doesn't always get onto the page. And I need someone to say, wait a second, why is that person doing that?
1: Right, right. There's that. And also when you write too much and it's more than the reader needs to know, which I think almost everybody does at the beginning of a book. You start stuffing it full of stuff and you need someone else to say, we don't need this information right now. Save it for chapter three or six or even the end.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, So I see you've actually written quite a lot by this point. You have six novels and four screenplays and a nonfiction book as well. So how did you get from not writing to The Art Forger?
1: Well, the First thing that I, I wrote this first novel that didn't get published, and then I decided I just wanted to get published, so I wrote a nonfiction book. And when I finished it, um, it's called *The Big Squeeze*, and it is about the sandwich generation, people who are dealing with aging parents while they still have young kids. And it was a very useful book, but I really didn't enjoy writing it. And I said, you know what, if I'm not going to make a living at this, I'm going to write what I want to write, which are novels. And so I wrote a novel that actually was a ghost story, um, but was also, I thought, Kind of literary, but when it got bought, it got marketed as psychological suspense, which it also was, and fell within the mystery genre. And I wrote four more books that got published that were psychological suspense. And uh, none of them did very well at all. But I decided I wanted to break out of some of this genre. You know, the, the genres put you inside a cage in a lot of ways, and I wanted to break out of it. So I wrote three more books that were not genre books, and I couldn't sell any of them. So those did not get published and I was ready to go on to my fourth or fifth or sixth career, depending on how you <laughs> number my careers. And I decided I was going to write one more book, and it was just going to be the book that I wanted to write. And it wasn't going to fit into any genre or not genre. It was just going To be the book of my heart and if this book did not get published then I was moving on and I was just going to close out the writing career and define it as successful and move on which of course I didn't want to do but felt that after you know if I had four unpublished books it was a sign that maybe this wasn't really where I should be spending all my efforts so I wrote The Art Forger and I um, Uh, We sent it out to all of the big publishers in New York, and they all turned it down, saying that it didn't fit into a genre. And people said, if you make it more historical, then we'd be interested. If you make it more of a thriller, we'll be interested. You make it more lit, we'll be interested. But it doesn't fit on the shelf somewhere. And if we can't classify it on a shelf, then we can't sell it. And I was devastated. The most devastated I was was when we got a rejection from a very, very big editor at Random House. And the rejection said, I love this book. It breaks my heart not to be able to buy it, but it's going to get lost in the swirl of random house trade paper. And it's never going to get the readership it deserves. So, of course, I cried and sobbed and said to my agent, I think, you know, I, I think we got to be done with this. And we decided that, no, we would go out one more time and just I said to her, send it everywhere to anyone you think might possibly be interested. And it ended up on the desk of my wonderful editor at Algonquin. And they wanted it. They wanted to publish it. And when I first met with her and told her how it had been rejected, and that it had been rejected because no one knew what it was, she kind of looked at me confused. And she said, it's a novel. And I was like, thank you. Thank you. It's a novel. So that's that's how it all came to be and the fact that it is now, you know, doing really, really well is testimony to the fact that uh, you don't need to be in a box.
0: No, I think that's a very heartening story it, because so many people get caught up in that and it's a wonderful book. I'm so glad that your editor uh, took a chance on it and I'm so glad it's doing so well. Maybe it'll kind of... Kick a few people in <laughs> places well, where they need to be kicked.
1: Yeah, it's, um, but you see, Algonquin is a very unusual publisher. They're small, but they're, you know, very well regarded. And they, most of these large publishers are publishing hundreds and hundreds of book a mo- books a month. Algonquin publishes 25 a year. So their model is very different, and they have to get behind every book they publish they can't do what these larger houses can do and you know if you have a really big name they're the ones who are making the money for the house and they're carrying a lot of other people with Algonquin every book has to carry itself and they go out they get behind it they promote it they're everywhere they're you know creative and they you know i i feel like they did this for me well, that uh, they've just been amazing. and uh, they, they made this happen for
0: me. Oh, that's great. And as a reader, I'm very grateful that they did because I loved this book from the moment oh, I opened did. it. I thought it was just fabulous. And I'd like to get into talking about... The Art Forger and where the idea for it came from. But I also want to let my listeners know that this is new books in historical fiction. And most of The Art Forger takes place in 1991, which, for people my son's age, is already history. Really? <laughs> um, but there is also, uh, I'm not sure that we will get to it because it depends how far we get into the plot. But there is also a historical thread, I think we could call it, that goes through the book um, which is part of it. So it does qualify as a book in historical fiction even though it's it can't be, you know, uh tacked into that ger- that genre and only that genre.
1: Again, that was <laughs> that was another problem with it was that it didn't, you know, is it historical or not, you know, make it more historical.
0: Right. No, I think it's just historical enough. And it was really very interesting. I I had left Boston by 1991, but I was there until 1989. I lived there from 82 to 89 and earlier oh. in the mm-hmm. 70s. And so um, it was almost like going home for me. And mm. I I remember the, the uh, theft at the Isabella uh, Gardner Museum, even though I wasn't there at the time.
1: Well, it was a huge, you know, it was a huge, huge deal. It still is. Mm-hmm. Um it, the largest uh, art theft in history solved or unsolved
0: yeah it was an extraordinary uh, coincidence is the only word I could think of but there's no, it's not really a coincidence but as I was uh, setting up this interview the news came over from the uh, FBI that they yeah. know who did it <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't know if they really do, but that's another story.
0: It certainly is. Uh, So tell us, what what made you focus on this theft for for the book of your heart?
1: Well, I had been wanting to write a book about Isabella Stewart Gardner for about 20 years. And I hadn't been able to figure out a way to do it. She was just this unbelievable bigger 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 than life woman and she lived at the end of the 19th century and uh, in Boston very very wealthy and women in that day and age particularly in the higher classes were their lives were so controlled and so conscribed and they really had no elbow room to do anything women who in the middle and working classes actually had a lot more freedom and Belle, her friends called her Belle, so I consider her my friend, so I call her Belle too. Uh, Belle just wasn't buying into this, and she was not going to be a proper Brahmin lady, and she literally, she walked lions down the main street of the city. She went to the symphony, the most stayed of all events, with a headband that said, Go Red Sox. She wore revealing dresses that were cut down to her collarbone, and all of the women in town were all at Twitter over it. Um, But the most amazing thing that she did was she became the first great art collector man or woman in America, she amassed this fabulous, fabulous art collection and originally she um, she lived in you know a very large mansion on one of the main streets in the city and she filled it up with art. so they bought the one next door and broke through the wall and she filled that up and then she ultimately built a museum which at the time she built it was called Fenway Court which is where she has 2,500 pieces of artwork there. And she lived there, and then when she died, she left it to the city, and it became the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And she just, I, I wanted to write about her, couldn't figure out how. And then when the heist happened, it was like, oh, well, maybe now I can come up with my Bell book. But the heist, which happened in 1990, was... So unbelievable. Um, and had its own full story. And I couldn't figure out a way to get the story of Belle who died in 1924 to link up with the story of the heist in 1990. And it wasn't until a few years ago when we moved back, we had lived in the city and then moved out to the suburbs to raise the kids. And then when they went to college, moved back in and, Suddenly, I was surrounded by art galleries and museums, and I'd always loved art, and I'd always loved the Gardner Museum, and I started spending time in the museums and taking classes, and I got really interested in art and in the contemporary art scene in Boston. So I thought, well, maybe I could put these three things together, and I was struggling with the way to make the stories work, and I totally it was total serendipity. I hit a website about art forgery when I was looking for something else. And suddenly it all started to fit together. I was so fascinated by the art forgery piece, who these people were that did it, how they did it, what they did, what happened to them when they got caught, what happened to the paintings when they didn't get caught. I just, you know, it blew my mind and it was the catalyst that made all of these pieces of all of these things that I had wanted to write about finally come together and be the book of my heart.
0: That's great. Um, the novel is wonderful. I mean, it has almost as many layers as, as Claire's paintings do. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And, um, so tell us a little bit about Claire Roth, your heroine. Uh, when we first meet her, she's an underpaid, if not literally starving artist living in a studio in Boston.
1: She is, but she is struggling even more than most struggling, starving artists because of a career-killing scandal that happened three years before the book opens. So when the book opens, uh, she is working because of the scandal. No one is interested in her work. She can't show it. The galleries won't buy it. The museums aren't interested in it. And she's forced to work for a company called Reproductions.com, where she, it's a totally legitimate business. She is hired to paint masterpieces, which they then sell online as copies of of masterpieces. And she does that during the day and she works on her own stuff, which nobody's interested in at night. And when the book opens, she's approached by the largest gallery owner in the city. And he says to her, if you will forge a painting for me, I will give you your own one-woman show. And this, of course, will catapult her career. And of course, it's breaking the law in so many different ways but she is so ambitious and so frustrated that she crosses this line and agrees to forge the painting for making the proverbial deal with the devil and as when we make deals with our devil she gets lots of trouble trouble trouble
0: (laughs) but she convinces herself that it's okay how does she do that well, you know this is something i
1: 'm very interested in um, i actually, my degrees are all in sociology and social psychology. the way that human beings rationalize their behavior and the idea of what any of us are willing to do to get what we want. So Claire and every other character, the main characters in the book all want something and they're all facing a line of whether to do it or not. And when they do do it, then they have to rationalize their behavior to themselves. And Claire feels in some ways like she deserves this after what had happened to her. In the past, that this is a way, you know, wrong had been done to her and she's doing this. And so that's one piece of it. The other piece is that you don't, copying a painting is you copy something and it looks like a painting. Forging a painting is when you actually go out and sell a painting and say that it is the work of. That artist. So she convinces herself that she is copying this painting. You know, she knows she's forging it, but she's not really doing anything wrong because she's not the one who's going to be going out and selling it. And many other rationalizations that I hope are familiar to the readers as in things that we all do, because to me, that's what a good novel is about, you know, exploring some aspect of the human condition. You know, I don't want to sound like too stuffy here, but that there's something in the character that the reader recognizes and is is willing to experience. So, like, they, hopefully, they experience Claire as Claire and her dilemma while also thinking about their own circumstances and what they might do and how they might rationalize it and how this is something that's in all of us and and where are each of our individual lines. I think
0: that's a really interesting point. Um, One of the... at one time, I looked into dramatica software, and I wasn't able to use it because it's it's like a mathematical equation for it doesn't match with my way of writing but the the one thing I thought was really interesting that the one of the people involved in that said is that a story is like the brain's way of exploring a problem, all the different approaches that you can take and and that's what I'm hearing in in your discussion of this that that the issue for the story is where is that line, and then various people. Approach it in different ways.
1: And I think in in some ways there's an analogy here to music, you know, where you have the chorus and, and you have things that mirror and reflect and are, you know, inside and outside. And that's what I try to do you know, is, is take a problem and look at it from all the different sides, you know, who, you know, we all do, you know, no one is perfect. There's no human being who always does the right thing. And even the worst person, you know, a serial murderer is like a regular, you know, person most of the time. I mean, he, you know, gets up in the morning, brushes his teeth, probably calls his mother. Um, you know, we're we're an interesting mix of good and bad. And so that's something that I really like to play around with. And then the question of when, when is it good and when is it bad? And the idea of, you know, the means justifying the end.
0: Yes. And one of the things that Claire does, uh, which is, I guess you could say, better half, maybe, uh, is that she, um, and I'm, I'm assuming this has some relevance to your own biography, because it's much closer to the sociology part than the art, but <laughs> she volunteers at a juvenile detention center where she mm-hmm. is helping them paint. Um, and that's as another thread in the story, another layer in the story, because it, I noticed that it echoes the main plot, something happens there, and then you can see it happening in her own life.
1: That's very good. <laughs> I love it when people get it. <laughs> That's great. Uh, yes, it's, um, you know, sometimes you don't want to get too deeply into why uh, a writer decides to do a certain thing, as I'm sure you know, because it can get into this whole sausage business, you know, like a little bit too much information. Right. But originally that story line came about because... Claire is doing you know the quote unquote wrong thing, and I wanted to show another aspect of her that was you know a good thing, and that was how it started out but i i did um I didn't go in and do art, but I have gone in and done writing with uh inner city kids, and I kind of translated it to that, but then. This story, I mean, she's doing bad things and these kids are locked up for doing bad things. So it becomes a mirror. She's there and she is seeing that there are real life consequences to this. And she may be telling herself she's not really forging because she's not going to sell it. If she gets caught, this bad stuff can happen.
0: Right, which doesn't stop her in the least. No, it doesn't. (laughs) That's the nature of denial. (laughs) Yeah, well, but isn't
1: that how we live our lives? Yes, absolutely. It's, you know, I mean, rationalization and denial are, are very, very good defense mechanisms. I mean, if you want to push it even farther, I mean, it's like we know, all of us know we're going to die it's there, it's reality, it's the truth but, you know, we rationalize it away and we don't think about it and we deny it and um, that's really a much better way to live, otherwise you turn into Woody Allen who's constantly worried about dying
0: Right, Um, and much easier on your friends and family too Yes,
1: exactly, and yourself
0: (laughs) And yourself, right So, um, after we meet Claire, we then learn something of the provenance of the Degas painting that she is forging and and let me say, it's not a real painting. I Googled it to make sure. And <laughs> I got to the end of the book and realized that you, put, you made that note in the author's note. I
1: have had people, like, angry at me, sending me angry emails that, do you know that Degas only painted After the baths, and you're claiming a fifth, and I went all over the internet, and I couldn't find the fifth. And I always write back and say, "It's a novel."
0: Right? No. In (laughs) fact, so many people have done that that if you put in now to God, three women, all these pictures point up come up
1: after the (laughs) baths. (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> <laughs> people keep telling me that's what they want to see—the painting, it you know—but it's lovely. only in my head.
0: It sounds perfectly lovely. You'll have to paint it next. <laughs> well, if I could, I would.
1: Actually, I I can't paint. Uh, one of the biggest compliments I get is when people ask me if I'm a painter, but I can't. And I actually have been playing around with the idea of hiring a painter to paint you know, one or two of the paintings in the book that it would be kind of like, you know, working with a sketch artist that I would have uh, him or her read the book, the description, and then I would sit with them, you know, and uh, say, no, 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 it's not quite like that. No, no, no. It's like you have to do this over here and this over here. I haven't got I haven't gotten the time to do it yet, but I'm, I'm playing with it.
0: You know, that's really amazing, because one of the things that I was going to mention, and then I'd like to get back to the the fictional provenance of the Degas painting, but I am an absolute painting moron. My my son can do anime and stuff like this on the computer. We have no idea. It must have skipped like three generations.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The genes work in strange ways. They do,
0: but I cannot, you know, stick people were sort of like the height of my artistic career. And when I, so one of the things I particularly liked about this book was that I, when I would read Claire painting, I felt like this was the first time in my life that I could imagine how the world looked mm. to an artist. Oh, and so I thought, you. oh, she must have been painting since she was three.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I've just been wishing I could paint since I was three. So
0: how did you, how did you reproduce that sense? I mean, it's very realistic. It, it feels absolutely what you would Thanks. expect from an artist. Well, I
1: interviewed a lot of artists and um i have a lot of friends who are artists and i read a lot of biographies of artists and i you know in some ways all all of the creative fields have a lot in common when it comes to the person Um, when I was writing this book, you know, I said that I had written three books that hadn't gotten published and I had written five that had been published poorly. And this was my last, this was my last attempt. And so I was a struggling artist and I was feeling that, you know, people were not paying attention to me, that I was working hard, that I, I thought I was creating, you know, quality work and none of it was coming to fruition, so I poured a lot of that into Claire, and when I, you know, people talk about how, writers talk about how they channel their characters, and the character comes to them, and then tells them what to do, and it isn't what the writer thought, and I don't know, my antenna may not just might not be hooked up right, but no one has, I've never channeled anybody. And so what I do is I think of myself as an actor. So I want, so I I am Claire. So I did all these interviews with artists. I spent a lot of time with painters in their studios, a lot of time with paintings and then tried to like an actor you know puts on the cloak of of the the character i i did that and then tried to write from inside claire uh to the extent that i started trying to imagine what the world would look like to a painter versus what the world looks like to a writer and I started looking at light and shadow and noticing that, for example, you think shadows are gray or black, but if you look at them, they usually have some purple or red in them and how colors, the juxtaposition of colors can create this this push and pull where the colors start to vibrate against each other and become more than they, they were by themselves. And just looking at how light, falls on objects and how different light creates different moods. And I would do that to put myself into Claire. And hopefully, you know,
0: it worked. It did work. I mean, I, I literally will never look at a painting the same way because yeah. I I'm a very verbal person. And so when I see it on the page, I can imagine what that would be like. But I had no idea that there was so much... I mean, I I, 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 I did no idea sort either. of, you know, because obviously painters are doing something that makes their paintings gorgeous. But the whole um, let's see, how do I phrase this without giving too much away? But the whole sense of what creates a masterpiece.
1: Yeah, and and the layers. I didn't know that these classical paintings were layers upon layers, and that you painted a single layer and let it dry, and then did another one, and how you go from colors. This is all. These are all things that I learned interviewing artists for the book, and it. You know, I was totally fascinated by it because I had loved art and had been spending all this time in museums, and I had no idea. What it was that I was admiring and what the craft of it is, which I think is, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about before, the craft of writing, too. There, there's a craft of storytelling. There's a craft of painting. And then there's the other things that you do with it that make it unique. But you have to know your craft,
0: Yes. No, I didn't know any of that about the layers um, either. And in fact, the whole business about forgery was fascinating because, you know, what you do. One of the questions um, I still haven't gotten back to the Degas, but so maybe we should talk about that first because, and then we can finish up with the the one of the things that interests me. It came up in a previous interview with Tasha Alexander, who um, has written a series of Victorian mysteries, and the first uh, the first one is uh, called in Only to Deceive. And it's about this whole question of what, what makes, not, not in a legal sense, but in a more artistic, mm-hmm. ethical sense, mm-hmm. what is the line between forgery and art? Yeah. You know, and I think it's, it's, I mean, obviously, in a legal sense, it's clear. I mean, forgery is fraud. But the act of copying a work of art What makes that distinct from the act of painting a work of art on, say, a subject that that has been painted previously,
1: or as you know, which is also one of the the themes of this book, um, is this very issue: where where does value lie? What is it that we we consider valuable or real? So, for example, you have a $50 million Degas and it's hanging in a museum and, you know, people love it and they admire it and, you know, people write their doctoral dissertations on it and then it's found to be a forgery. Is it any less beautiful? Was the joy that it gave not real joy? Um, should the dissertations be rescinded? Um, what, what is it, you know, what, what's authentic and what isn't. And in this society that we live in now, where if your name is Kardashian, you have a lot of value. And if you're a librarian, you know, you don't have a whole lot. I think that these are really interesting questions. What, what is it?
0: Yeah. And what is it? And, and because it took, it can take as much work, it can be as much effort uh, absolutely and
1: and, you... and is effort it or and then again, is beauty it you know is is the value because it was signed by degas is the value because it was created by degas is the value in what it looks like I mean what you know where where is the line?
0: And there's also this bizarre thing in that the the process of forgery which I I mean I suppose I was somewhat aware of it but watching it develop throughout the course of the book I started to really see that in effect Claire creates a work of art right. which is her own um, even though she's copying this other painting. Right. And in order to the the final stage she she doesn't destroy the painting but she actually dials it back in a sense to make it appear old right. enough to right. be Degas. So she actually, she takes it up to a certain point, And then she, it's almost like she, um, you know, she had a five-star painting that was hers. And then in order to fulfill her contract with the gallery dealer, she has to, or any forger has to, then make it a four-star painting that is pretending to be something else. It's, yeah. it's really a fascinating yeah, I never
1: thought about it quite like that. But you're right, and uh, she did. But then she took what she learned from that and turned it into her own paintings, which right, I exactly. had a lot of fun with. Which mm-hmm. I had a lot of fun with. That was that was fun.
0: Right, and those are considered unambiguously art. And I, I, I suppose it's yeah. it's the the diciness of it in a way. The, you know, this, the sense that something is pretending to be what it isn't, even if. It's not, you know, even if it's still beautiful, it's. Right, right. But, it, and then is it art? Right, exactly. That's, that's. And, the and what
1: is art, mm-hmm. you know? And, and there's all of these different definitions. I mean, when, you know, Jackson Pollock threw the paint on, on the painting for his drip paintings, people didn't think that was art. Now it's art. So how does that? How does all of this stuff change, and how does the moment in time that we're in define these things? Right. That's really interesting. Just it to, is it, really you know, I interesting. find this stuff really interesting.
0: Yeah, a lot of, I mean, it's frankly, a lot of stuff that shows up in galleries now doesn't seem, It's if people say it's our, who am I to contradict them? But, you know, if, if I look up and I see a canvas, it's essentially a large blue square, I'm sort of thinking... <laughs> It's, um, but you
1: know, whatever it was that anybody did. I mean, the impressionists were considered, you know, like nobodies. And they mm-hmm. thought that you know, just throwing the paint on the canvas like that was the terrible thing. And so it changes. Uh, all our tastes change, our values change, our definitions change. And again, as a sociologist, I just find this really the the moment really, really interesting. And that was also why I really liked having the other story, the past story of Isabella Stewart Gardner flowing through it. Because her moment was different than Claire's moment, but yet there are many similarities as they're they're both struggling to get what they want in a man's world and struggling with, you know, rights and wrongs and that that Fuzzy moral
0: line. Yeah, that's great. That segues us perfectly in, back into the part that I've been moving away from to get there. Sorry if I've been digressing. <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, I was the one digressing. So, um, but please let's let's talk about the um, the Isabella Stewart Gardner line, at least the beginning of it, and where this uh, where the origin of the Degas painting that is the center of the story. Let's put it that way.
1: Well, the. Um the painting um is I mean for me it it was the portal into Bell. That there was something in the present that Claire had to figure out that had to do with this painting that ultimately had to do with Belle and who she was and her story. So I I I just loved bringing those stories together. But I I did have trouble trying to figure out how to do it. I had originally started writing scenes of Belle's life, but then I realized that it was Claire's story and I couldn't really do that. And so I decided I would write letters. So these are fictional letters that Belle writes to her fictional niece about her fictional relationship with Edgar Degas, and talk about you know I was saying I had so much fun being Claire as a painter. I had so 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 much fun being Belle and writing these letters in in her voice. I, I had uh, you know read pretty much every book about her, and uh, I. I felt I knew a lot about her and I read hundreds and hundreds of letters that she wrote and then I just sat down and I was Belle writing those letters. It was uh it was very cool. Very, very cool. That's
0: great. They read as though you had fun writing them. I have to say <laughs> <laughs> So Belle is in Paris and Belle meets uh several impressions, I think. Um yes. And one of them happens to be Edgar, uh, um, I'm sorry, Edgar Degas. Yes. And she, I I suppose this is part of her personality, really, that even though at that time the Impressionists are not being taken seriously as artists, that I would suspect might actually draw her to them.
1: Well, she actually was, very very she was very very opinionated about all kinds of things and she did not like expressionist art impressionist art she thought it was a total cop-out and in the book Degas is moving towards his impressionist stage you know because these these artists Usually started out, I mean, even somebody like Picasso started out working representationally and again learning their craft and then moving on to new and different things. And this was when she meets him, it's a point where he's halfway between the two, and she ultimately convinces him to go back and do a more traditional painting. That's what she wants him to do. And she, like Claire and like Markle and like all kinds of other people in the book, is faced with the decision of what to do to get this painting that she wants. What What's the line she's willing to
0: cross? Yes. Yes, she is. Um, I'm sorry, I was- Thinking very briefly as you were talking about that you're right, it, it's that she wants Degas to be more representational. I this doesn't come out in your book, but I remember reading it elsewhere that Degas as he got older had severe vision problems and I've yes. always wondered if that was part of what drew him to Impressionism because he in his early paintings they're very representational. Yes. And yet, right. as he gets older, they get fuzzier and fuzzier. And I've always wondered if part of it is just that—that's what he could see.
1: I don't know. Um, I could be wrong, but I think it was after that that his vision started going. But I'm—I'm not—I'm not sure. But that's a good theory. <laughs> you gotta like it. <laughs>
0: You never know. Somebody else can have it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. I like it. We'll keep it.
0: Uh one other character who um uh, faces the line, um, is Isaac Cullion, Claire's former mm-hmm. boyfriend. Do you want to talk about him at all? He is
1: <laughs> Isaac is to me I mean he wasn't a, a bad person again he did the wrong thing he crossed the line he he too faced um you know a decision and made what could be considered the wrong one i was try- with with all of these characters because they all you know crossed the line to do something wrong i was really trying to show that they're not all bad so he does these Bad things, but he's such a product of you know the the macho art world and the way these male artists and writers um, often are you know there's been a, a rash of books about the women behind the men, like the Paris wife and you know Hemingway was you know incredibly difficult, and she just kind of helped him along the way and you know this whole idea of the muse and so in this it's like he, he is epitomizing that kind of man in the kind of world that is saying he has a value and she doesn't and so I was trying to, to flip that around again that he did the wrong thing, what for him seemed the right reason and it didn't work out well, but he got, you know, there, there was some, some kind of justice in the story, which I was trying to do with everybody and a loss and a gain for him, probably more of a loss than other people. But I, I liked their relationship. I, I enjoyed working
0: with them? Yes, he's an interesting character, I think, and their relationship parallels her later interactions with the gallery owner um, in some interesting ways, I think.
1: Yeah, well, you know, Claire doesn't make the best decisions when it comes to men. Actually, she doesn't make the best decisions when it comes to a number of things, but that's why we love her.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> and besides, she's only in her twenties, right?
1: I mean, how many of us yeah. make great decisions? When yeah, we were 20s? yeah, you know, she's
0: just
1: a kid. Right. <laughs> and screwing around. <laughs> <I don't
0: know. laughs> So as we finish up, I wondered if, I'm kind of taking you by surprise, so you may not have had a chance to pick something, but is there a, pa- a passage from the novel that you particularly like that you would like to read?
1: Um, I could do that, and there's one that's short that goes to what we were talking about with... Um, when I was trying to figure out what it would like, be like it, for a painter to have a painting with them that is a Degas, is uh, it, Claire is actually a Degas expert and Degas is one of her idols, and so I was trying to imagine what it would be like for her to have, you know, an actual Degas in her. You know, like like in her space. You know, oh yeah, that's a there's, great there's, passage. Do yeah, read, do read yeah. that one,
0: please.
1: So um, I can I can read this. Uh, so it's the first time that she's alone with the painting, and she did not know it was going to be Degas, and she's just totally blown away by the whole thing. And she lives in her studio, and so the painting is in her studio. Now. The room is dark, and I'm lying on my mattress. I've been up most of the night. I feel after the bath like a human presence, massive, breathing, haunting, yet also comforting, as if Degas himself is with me, risen from the dead, his genius, his brushstrokes, his heart. I think about the Gardner Museum, about the frames that hang empty on the walls of the Blue Room, the Dutch Room, and the Short Gallery. The frames hold nothing where the stolen artwork used to be, marking the loss, waiting stoically for the return of their raison d'etre. I've been to the museum many times since the robbery, and I always stop in front of these frames to ponder the fate of their missing centers. I climb out of bed, flick on the light, and stand in front of the painting. It's such a magnificent being. So alive, yet more like the sensation of life rather than how life actually is. Color and emotion pulse from the canvas. Once again, tears fill my eyes, and this time I let them run down my cheeks. I should return it to the gardener right now. It isn't fair to keep such a masterpiece hidden away. But I don't want to give it back. I want to live with it, spend time with it, paint it. I know I shouldn't, but I reach out and tenderly run my finger over the hand of the bather on the right. She's seated, one leg raised as she towels her ankle dry. I decide her name is Francois. The other two are Jacqueline and Simone.
0: That's lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, And what are you working on
1: now? Um, I love that question. Um, I'm working on another novel that also is about art, But this one is about uh, the abstract expressionists, and it takes place primarily in New York City right before World War II when Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning and Lee Krasner and Mark Rothko, they were all, you know, young, unknown artists. And they were all working for the WPA during the Depression, and they were friends. Uh, They were crazy friends. They were, you know, jumping in and out of each other's beds and drinking and carrying on and also creating this fabulous new school of art so that's the backdrop of it and then the story is about a another artist who's fictional who interacts with been as friends with all of these people, and she is trying to get her French family out of France before World War II starts their Jewish. And in the process of this, she is befriended by Eleanor Roosevelt, and she makes enemies of Joe Kennedy and Charles Lindbergh, and uh, at the opening of the book, you see that she has disappeared, and then the story tells how, through art and politics, she disappeared and what happens so i'm having a really good time
0: <laughs> i can't wait <laughs> you'll, you'll come back and talk to us again right of course i will and this one will be more historical absolutely yes perfect thank you so much for sharing your time with well, us thank tonight. you it's my pleasure great bye-bye barbara bye As I checked the recording of this conversation, I realized that in the grip of a momentary brain freeze, I said that most of the story takes place in 1991. The theft at the Gardner Museum did occur in 1990, but Claire's encounter with Degas' fifth after the bath, and most of her story is set in 2011. The historical elements of the novel include Belle Gardner's own story, her art collection, and the museum she founded, as well as the provenance and history of Degas' fictional painting. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, your host, and today I've been talking with B.A. Shapiro, author of The Art Forger. You can find out more about her at bashapirobooks.com. That's B-A-S-H-A-P-I-R-O books as one word and no www. Goodbye for now, and please join me next month for another discussion of new books in historical fiction.